morning. Welcome to LifeBridge Online. I'm Pastor Chris, and I'm glad you're here this morning. This is our usual discovery hour when we have classes for all ages and stages, but during the current pandemic, we're live streaming at this time. And so I'm glad you're here. Now would be a great time, we ask every week, to like and share with your Facebook friends. The more you like, the more you share. And uh, the more you comment, actually, the more the word of the of the Lord gets out to more people. Now, let me want to begin this morning with this question: How often do you think about your thinking? When was the last time you thought about your thoughts? Now, maybe you're saying, Chris, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I'm asking you to think about the last time you thought about your thinking. And before you turn me off or tune me out, uh, I want you to know God wants His people to be thinkers. God wants His people to be thinkers. Now, um, what comes to mind when you think of being a thinker is the statue uh, uh, called the thinker, right? I mean, it's famous. We're not saying you got to sit naked and think great thoughts like this guy is. And uh, this famous statue, it's located in Paris. I want to tell you a funny story. Uh, we were in uh, Paris with uh, my family. We were retracing my dad's steps through World War II from Normandy Beach all the way through Germany and uh, even visited Austria. And so we had one day in Paris, and so we took a double-decker tour where you have the audio and you kind of see all the highlights. And we're going on this bus tour, and and we're told through our, our uh, headphones that the thinker, the famous statue, is coming up. And Amber was at an age then where she loved to take pictures, and so she had her camera, and I said, Amber, get ready, get ready. Here it comes, here it comes, and boom, this is what we see. All right. It's a little dark, I know, but basically we saw the backside of the thinker. So I now call this the stinker instead of the thinker. Well, I just had to share that story because God wants you to be a thinker. Now, we know that God wants us to be believers, right? That's very common to think that, to believe that. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. God wants us to be followers, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, Jesus said. God wants us to be doers of the word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We're familiar with that. God wants us to be lovers. Okay, we know we are to be lovers. Jesus said, love the Lord your God. He summarized the entire Bible with this one first major command. But do you realize God also wants us to be thinkers? Just think about that verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, say it with me, mind. With all your mind. Jesus rebuked Peter when he set his mind, his thoughts, on the things of men instead of the things of God. Peter learned his lesson and warned the Jewish Christians he later wrote to, to prepare your minds for action. Paul told the believers at Philippi, think 
about these things. And then he said, these are the things you are to think. He told the church at Rome, renew your mind, renew your thoughts in order to not be conformed to this world and to be able to discern what is the will of God. He told the Colossian believers, set your mind, your thoughts on things above and not on the things on the earth. And Paul told the Corinthians not to stress out about this because after all, we have been given the mind of Christ so that we can think God's thoughts after him. We can understand what he says in his word and by his spirit. Listen, God wants us to be thinkers who think about surrendering our thinking to him. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Are we thinking like God thinks? Is our thinking biblical? Does it line up with the Bible? Is it pleasing to God? Is our thinking causing us to worry more? Or is it causing us to trust him more as we talked about last week? In other words, God wants you and I to surrender our thinking to him. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. And as we, we're moving our way in this series, uh, Surrender, Wisdom's Path to Success, we're moving our way through chapter 3. And in verse 2, we are introduced to the idea of time. We are to surrender our time. In verses 4, or actually 5, 6, Five and six, last week we saw we are to surrender our trust to him. And now, in verses seven and eight, we're going to see we are to surrender our thinking. Each lesson is moving and, and building on the one before it. So let's look at Proverbs chapter three, there in your Bibles, follow along with me. Always have your Bibles all open, always be following along, always be thinking about what you are hearing. And so let's look at Proverbs uh, 3. Let's start in verse 5, and we'll go through uh, verses 7 and 8. Verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Oh, what a promise we have from God if we'll only surrender our thinking. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us do that very thing. Heavenly Father, we come to You with uh, humility and with a confession that we are often wise in our own eyes. We're wise guys and, and wise women, and, and we think we know better than you. Lord, we humbly ask for you to make us wise in your eyes. And Lord, help us to concentrate our thinking so that we can think through surrendering our thinking to you. Lord, there's a lot of things consuming our thoughts right now. There's a lot of things, and a lot of people are going through emotional, physical, economic, 
and relational stress right now. But behind all of that is a spiritual battle. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would take your word and counteract anything the devil would want to do in the hearts of those who are listening. Open up hearts, implant your word, may it bear fruit that remains to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, surrendering our thinking is another way of saying we should have a biblical worldview. And uh, whether you realize it or not, whether you even know what one is, you have a worldview. And so let's begin this study by asking three questions regarding what is a worldview? What are worldviews? So let's, let's, let's ask the first question. It's this. What's a worldview? And you could get real philosophical and real deep about this. I like to try to make it as simple as possible and something that's memorable. Well, here it is. A worldview is the way you look at the big picture of life. Uh, I was going to bring some big, massive sunglasses. I should have done that and, and put them on because that's what your worldview is. It's how you look and process and reflect and live your life. couple great uh, definitions there, quotes, a mental and spiritual lens through which you view reality. I like what Chuck Colson said, my personal beliefs about the world that direct my decisions and actions. You see, we often make the mistake of dividing everything into two categories, especially we as Christians can do this. We divide the world into the spiritual and the unspiritual. And the, the problem with that, when you divide life that way, is you begin to only take God seriously in the spiritual things and you exclude Him from the unspiritual things. You reflect maybe and even think about the Bible in the spiritual areas of your life, but you don't bring the Bible to bear on the unspiritual aspects of life. And that's, that's a problem. Because when you have a biblical worldview, you understand that everything happens in this world should be viewed in light of who God is and how He rules and relates to everything that he has made. So let me give you this idea. A biblical worldview is looking at life from God's perspective. And biblical wisdom is living life from that perspective. You see, a worldview is how you view life. Wisdom is how you live life. And so a biblical worldview is looking at life as God looks at it. And biblical wisdom is living life from that perspective. And so when you have a biblical worldview, you filter everything through that worldview. In other words, a biblical worldview will filter this pandemic through that view. You will filter, you'll, you'll filter the upcoming election. You'll filter what's happening in your life and in your world, your media consumption, your podcasts that you listen to, your video games that you play, your, your 
uh, entertainment that you watch, your schoolwork, your, your business, your relationships, your marriage, your parenting, your singleness, everything is filtered through a biblical worldview. And when you live by a biblical worldview, after you've seen all that from God's perspective, you begin to live wisely because wisdom is living life from God's perspective. A biblical worldview is the basis for wise living. That's what it means to be a thinking Christian. And I know some people think that's an oxymoron, thinking and a Christian. But that's not the case. God wants us to be thinkers. But to do that, we've got to surrender our thinking to Him. Now, what are some common worldviews? Uh, I've been t- we're we're going to be talking about a biblical worldview. Let me uh, give you, in his book, Think Like Jesus, George Barna presents seven different worldviews. I'm just going to go briefly over four of these, just so you realize that there are different ways to view the world. The first one that we want to talk about, a common alternative, is deism. Deism, the belief that there is a God, but he's not interested in our daily lives. Now, many Americans embrace deism, even if they don't know what the word means. And it's the idea that God created this world kind of like a watchmaker makes a watch. He makes the watch, he winds it up, he walks away, and it leaves it to operate on its own. Many Americans believe that there's some kind of God up there, but he's not really interested in the ordinary daily events of our lives. We're kind of left on our own to do our own thing. Deism often leads into humanism. And that's the second worldview, humanism. The belief that this world is all there is. Humanism is very much like materialism. What you see with your senses is all that there is. And if, there's, and if anything is wrong with this world, it's us humans that are going to have to fix it. It's us humans who will determine what is wrong and if there is a solution. For the humanist, humanity is the measure of all things. But that doesn't go real well. And so that leads us into a third worldview that is very prevalent today, and that's postmodernism. Postmodernism. And postmodernism is kind of the result of humanism and modernism and, and rationalism failing us. In other words, hey, I can't think through this, and I've got feelings here. And so feelings become very prevalent in a postmodern worldview. The idea is truth is relative. If it's true for you, it may not be true for me, and that's okay unless I say differently. This is very prevalent, as I said, in America today. In postmodern thought, your God exists if you believe it does. Uh, and and he's, he, he might be a he, a she, or an it. By its very nature, postmodern defies a firm definition because it's so relative. You can define it the way you want. I can define it the way I want. And that's all all right with me. 
until I tell you otherwise. Many younger generations embrace postmodernism today. It's known for its hyper-tolerance to every way of living and thinking unless someone tells you otherwise. Well, I want to give you a fourth worldview, and uh, it's, it's more common in America, and, it, and it's, it's common to cultural Christianity. It's common to people who have been raised in Christianity but have never really known Christ. It's called therapeutic moral deism. And the basic idea is God wants us to feel good about ourselves and lead a good life to enter heaven. This was a massive study that was done uh, in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers, and they labeled it moralistic therapeutic deism. And here's the idea. Here's the five kind of essence of its worldview. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. So there is a God, but he's kind of a deistic God. He just is kind of there. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and as in most religions. In other words, the, the golden rule, be nice, be good, do good. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. There's the therapeutic idea. The doing good and God being good is the moral aspect of it. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. There's the deism. You don't really need God until, well until you need him. And then he should be right there to rescue you. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. In other words, there's only a few people that aren't going to be in heaven because basically everybody's good to, in somebody's eyes. Now, as the researchers, researchers explained, for most teens, nobody has to do anything in life, including anything to do with religion. Whatever is just fine. Just just do whatever. And when you ask them about morals and absolutes and religion, they'll shrug their shoulders and just say, whatever, whatever. Now, here's the point that I want you to get as you look at these different worldviews. We need Christians of all ages to start thinking about their faith. Remember, Jesus said we're to love the Lord our God with all our mind. And listen, it's tragic, but it's true. Many, many Christians here in the States go into church services and kick their minds in neutral. And we want to counter that. God wants us to counter that tendency. So here's the challenge. Don't check your brains at the door on Sundays. Don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out. Be a thinking Christian. But also, at the same time, don't check your Bibles at the door on Mondays when you go to work. 
Bring the Bible to bear on all of life. Think about your thinking. Give thought to your thoughts. And that brings us to the third question that will lead us into the rest of the lesson and right into Proverbs 3. And it's this. How do I begin to develop a biblical world view? And it's, it, the, I'm just going to make it simple. You know, we could make it a lot more complex, but we're just going to look at Proverbs 3, 7, and 8, and I'm going to give you the ABCs for surrendering your thinking to the Lord. And so let's dive in and look at it. The A in the ABCs of surrendering your thinking, the A is this. Admit God knows better than you. Admit God knows better than you. You don't know it all. But God does. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be a know-it-all. Admit God knows better than you. And in the context of the chapter that we've been working through, uh, this is just another way of saying, do not lean on your own understanding. Don't be so wise in your own eyes that you always rely on, on your view of things instead of God's. And Proverbs has a lot of things to say about Let me just read two verses for you about being wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man or a woman wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him or her. And if you know what, what Proverbs says about the fool, this is really bad. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. So let me give you two reasons why God knows better than we do. And the first reason is this. He knows better because he is the eternal creator of all things. He is the eternal creator. So this is really important. I want you to get this. Never forget that at the core of a biblical worldview is that God is the creator of all things. Listen, if you start messing with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, if you start uh, messing with God creating all things out of nothing by his spoken word, you start dismantling the entire biblical worldview. But don't take my word for it. Look at Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. Look at Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. Notice what it says. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Here's the idea. Everything you see, this entire universe, the intricacies of science, of gravity, of the laws of nature, of the beauty of the cell system and the human body and nature... All of that is due to God's knowledge, his understanding, and his wisdom. Listen, God knows better. He knows how to make creation function. You can trust him to know 
how to make your life function in the best possible way. Now, he not only knows all things because he's the creator or knows better than we do because he's the creator of all things, but God knows better because he's the ideal father to his children. So he's not this deistic creator that created and he's distant. No, he's near and dear like a loving father. Listen, um, his, and, and, and who is he a father to? Uh, in one sense, yeah, he's the father to all of creation because he created it all. But in a re- saving sense, in a redeeming sense, in a relational sense, he is only father to those who have been born again. He is a father to those who put their trust in him, like in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And ultimately, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who know the Son have God as their heavenly Father. And our heavenly Father knows best. Now, this is very important in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 1 through 9, the emphasis is really big on listening to the counsel and the instruction of a father to his son. In fact, in Proverbs 3, just in this chapter, verses 1, verses 11, verses 21, we are told, My son, do not forget. My son, do not lose sight. My son, do not despise the instruction of your father. Now, when it comes to our earthly dads, and I have to confess this as an earthly dad, I think many of us can identify with the newscaster Tim Russert, who has said, the older I get, the smarter my father seems to get. And that old Missouri wise person, Mark Twain, put it this way, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. I love that story. And it's so true. I, I, it's true as a son, and I now know it's true as a father. Listen, regardless of how wise or foolish your earthly father is or was, if we're going to surrender our thinking to God, then we need to admit That God, as our creator, as our redeemer, as our heavenly father, knows better than we do. Knows better than we do. A long time ago, there used to be a show called Father Knows Best. Shows with those kind of titles aren't popular anymore. But here's the deal. Maybe your earthly father didn't measure up in the wisdom area, but your heavenly father knows best. Admit that he knows better than you do. The father-son relationship in the book of Proverbs is explained in Proverbs 1.1 in this way. Proverbs 1.1, you can find it right there in your Bible. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. But as you read through the book of Proverbs, it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's wisdom wrapped in flesh. 
Jesus is the sinless son of David. Remember, David sinned big time. Jesus was sinless. Jesus is the one greater than Solomon. Solomon was wise and powerful, but he did some horrible, horrible sins and mistakes, especially in the area of marriage and wives. Jesus was the sinless and wiser Solomon. Jesus is the Son of God, wrapped in human flesh, who is the only mediator between foolish sinners like you and I and a righteous, perfect, but loving Heavenly Father. Listen, the first A, B, C in surrendering your thinking is A, admit your Father, your God knows better than you do. The B in these ABCs is this. Begin to fear God more than anything else. So A, admit that God knows better than you. B, begin to fear God more than anything else. And here's how Proverbs 7 says it. If you're not going to be wise in your own eyes, then fear God. Two words. And yet it's your total biblical world view begins and ends with fearing God. Now, listen, when we begin our lives, uh, we all think we're the center of our own little universe. Shout out to the Davis family with their new son, uh, Silas Josiah. And uh, Silas is going to let the Davis family know that he is the center of his universe. And so if he doesn't get fed, if he doesn't get changed, he's going to let everybody there in the Davis family. In fact, anybody that's around him know that, hey, I'm the center of my universe. Drop what you're doing and take care of me. And that's okay with a sweet little center baby that we all conceive. But as we grow older, if we're not careful, we can remain at the center of our own little universe thinking we know it all and fail to fear God and give Him the rightful place in our hearts and lives. You see, when we're wise in our own eyes, we don't need God unless something really bad happens. But when we fear God, we need Him for the next breath. We need Him just to go to sleep at night and be able to wake up the next morning. We need Him just to make it one more minute in a manner that will bring glory to Him, good to others, and joy to our own hearts. And so when you surrender your life to God, you and I replace our selfish ego with our Creator, Redeemer, Father, God, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And let me say to you, when you surrender to God this way, it's a liberating experience. That's what grace is. It sets you free to be the person God created you to be and the person that will bring the kind of person that will bring you the greatest joy and bring the greatest good to the people around you. And so it's liberating. You no longer have to bear the weight of the world. On your shoulders. Listen, this pandemic, it's stressful. It wears on all of us and it will wear us and grind us down unless we fear God and realize that we have someone who has said to us, 
Cast all your cares on me, for I care for you. Listen, someone today needs to hear this. They need it, and God will give it to you. I love watching the movie Rudy. You may recall Rudy was an undersized football player who dreamed of playing on the Notre Dame football team. And in the movie, he's befriended by a priest. And in one of their discussions, the priest says this to Rudy, and it's one of the great lines in a movie ever. In 35 years of religious study, I've only come up with two hard, indisputable facts. There is a God... And I'm not him. There is a God. And I'm not him. Listen, that's what it means to begin to fear God. One of the greatest revelations you'll ever come to your life, come to in your life is that it's not about you. It's about God and others. And so let me give you two ways to kind of implement and think through this. First of all, because the fear of the Lord You know, it sounds scary, fear. You know, am I supposed to be scared of God all the time? But let me give you a couple things. First of all, fear the Lord, know God for who He really is, and run to Him with a faith that wants to obey. You see, too often we don't run to God because we don't have a biblical view of Him, and therefore we don't have a biblical view of our need of Him. Listen, Fearing God means that you surrender your life to where God is the center. He's, we've been using this uh, illustration. He's the GPS. He's the center of all things. I've got a couple quotes in your notes. Here, 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 here's what it means to fear God. To fear God is to stand in awe of His righteousness, majesty, and power, and to trust Him by humbly depending on him. Here's another definition. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. That's by Charles Bridges. In other words, here's what it means to fear the Lord. Begin to think and live like he's second to none. Begin to think and live like he is second to none in every area of your life. Now, I have a chart in your notes. If you've downloaded the notes, you can download those at wearelifebridge.com, our website under resources. But we've looked at this chart before. The wisdom literature, the five wisdom books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs all emphasize this idea. Some just flat out say it. Song of Songs implies it. And it's this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm just going to challenge you. Maybe you haven't been reading your Bible. Maybe you don't have a reading plan. Try reading through the five wisdom books and think through this idea that to fear the Lord in the book of Job is to know Him better than anyone or anything. When you come to the end of the book of Job, Job says this to God. In the midst of all of his suffering, and his suffering hadn't even changed yet, and he said, you know what? I knew you by the hearing of the ear, 
but now I know you. I know you better. And if you would ask Job today, all that suffering he went through was worth it to know God more than anyone or anything. That's what it means to fear Him. In Psalms, it means to praise Him more than anything else or anyone else. In Proverbs, here in chapter 3 in the book of Proverbs, it means to trust Him more than you would anyone or anything else. And in Ecclesiastes, it's to obey Him more. Uh, Ecclesiastes ends with this. Here's the conclusion of the manner. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then in the Song of Songs, it means to fear the Lord is to love Him more than anyone or anything else. Song of Solomon, the great passion that is pictured in marriage is what our relationship ought to be like. When we fear God, we love God more than anyone or anything. I want you to listen to a quote. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to listen to it. It's a quote by a man by the name of A.E. Whittem. And I want you to listen and see if this rings true in your heart. Here's what he says. If you knew that there was one greater than yourself, who knows you better than you can know yourself, and loves you better than you can love yourself, who can make you all you ought to be, steadier than your squally nature, able to save you from squandering your glorious life, who searches you beyond the standards of earth, one who gathered into himself all great and good things and causes, blending in his beauty and all the enduring color of life, who could turn your dreams into visions and make real the things you hoped were true. And if that one had ever done one unmistakable thing to prove, even at the price of blood, his own blood, that you could come to him and having failed, come to him again, would you not fall at his feet? with the treasure of your years, your powers, service, and love? And is there not one such? And does he not call you? Oh, listen, beloved, that's what it is to fear God. He can make it all happen for you and through you, for his glory, your good, and the joy that will last beyond the worst of circumstances. And so, let me encourage you. Let's follow the ABCs of surrendering our thinking. The A, admit God knows better than you. B, begin to fear the Lord more than anyone or anything. And the C is this. Capture every thought to obey Christ. Capture every thought and bring it into obedience to Jesus Christ. Notice what Proverbs 3, 7 says. The flip side of fearing God is this, and turn away from evil. Turn away from evil. You see, the problem 
with the other worldviews that we briefly mentioned is they don't really provide any absolute standards of right and wrong. They miss the core problem of humanity, and that is the depravity of our hearts, which are desperately wicked. They miss that problem, and therefore they offer no solution to it. You see, deism, there's a God, but he doesn't intervene in our lives. He doesn't provide divine revelation. He doesn't perform miracles. He's left it up to us to reason out what is right and what is wrong. And hey, look around you. In our nation, in the nations of the world, human reasoning isn't cutting it. It isn't cutting it. Think about humanism. Humanity is the measure of all things. So what is right or wrong is once again left up to humanity. We don't have one who is timeless, one who is holy, one who rules and created all things. Humanism is left with us humans. Again, a whole history of tragedy without success. And then think of postmodernism. There's no absolute truth. Except the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. It's inconsistent. It's illogical. And it fundamentally does not work. Right and wrong is always relative. And whatever truth there is, it's what John Stewart called on The Daily Show. It's truthiness. It kind of has a character of truth. But in moral therapeutic deism, it comes down to this. Do whatever makes you feel better and does the greatest good in your own estimate. Really, that sounds like the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But read the book of Judges and see the bloody, violent, unjust culture that that kind of worldview created. But in a biblical worldview, there is good and there is evil. And God himself has revealed to us what is the way, the truth, and the life. And he's revealed it not as an abstract principle, not as a divine goal for humanity to work toward. He revealed it in his son who was fully God and became truly man, he revealed it in a person. Listen to me this morning. That which you are looking for, that which you are longing for, that which you are searching but you don't really know what it is that you're searching for, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can help you break free from the addicting habits of sin, those secret sins that no one knows about, but are pulling you down, the guilt that's weighing you down, the bondage to bad habits, bad words, and just a bad way of treating people. God can deliver you from that. You can turn from evil, but you must capture every thought and bring it into obedience to Christ. Jesus says that he is the source of truth. In uh, John 
chapter 14, chapter 15, 16, 17, Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, really laid down these beautiful truths. But it, it's really summed up in this one verse, John 14, 6. I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the source of truth. And He can set you free. And the person that the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's move on to Paul on surrendering our thinking. Paul on surrendering our thinking. Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. And I just want to read this passage. 2 Corinthians 3. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. Notice what it says in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God has the resources to break the strongholds in your thinking, the strongholds in your heart, and the strongholds in your actions. We destroy arguments. The battle begins in the mind. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That last part reminds us that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And when we're foolish and we are wise in our own eyes, there is judgment to come. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment where we have to stand and answer before our Creator. But the good news is this, if we will admit that God knows better than I do, if I will begin to fear the Lord, and if I will capture every thought and bring it into submission to do what Christ would want me to do, I can face the judgment of God knowing that I have Christ's righteousness I have the mind of Christ, I have the righteousness of Christ, and I can stand guiltless, and not only guiltless, but perfect in God's eyes, blameless, above reproach. So here's the bottom line. How am I going to take every thought captive to Christ unless I know what Christ would want me to do? So let me say it this way. You're never going to take every thought captive until you get a strong grip on the Word of God. So again, in the midst of these trying times, let me encourage you, hear the Word consistently. Read it daily. Study it diligently. Memorize it weekly. Meditate on it constantly. And apply it to your life like your life depends on it, because it does. And the result will be, you will fear God, you will begin to turn away from evil, and you will take every thought captive to Christ. Well, there's more that we could say. 
But let's move on to the last letter in the ABCs of surrendering your thinking. A, admit God knows better. B, begin to fear the Lord. C, capture every thought to obey Christ. And D, delight in the healing boundaries of a biblical worldview. Delight in the healing boundaries of a biblical worldview. Notice verse 8. Here's the promise. If you will do ABC, here's the promise. Verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Literally, it will be healing and refreshment to the very core of your being. Listen. 16 of the 35 verses in chapter 3 are dedicated to the blessings that come to those who surrender their thinking and their lives to a biblical worldview. In other words, the vast majority of this is the blessings that God wants to pour out on your life, not only here, but in the life to come. You see, a biblical worldview is limiting It has boundaries. You have to surrender your thinking, your mind, your body, your strength, your life to God. There are limitations, but such limitations are liberating. It sets you free to be the person you have always wanted to be and that God created you to become. Now, I want to end with this story about C.S. Lewis. Uh, Many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. I love reading his books. I love quoting him. Um, His his full name was Clive Staples Lewis. And he was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898. And he died on November 22, 1963. Same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Now, he fought for England in World War I attended Oxford University where he graduated first in his class. He taught for many years at Oxford and Cambridge and was regarded as one of the greatest intellects of the 20th century. This guy had a brain. He had a mind. Although he was raised in a Christian home, during college he chose to become a very vocal atheist. He came to believe that Christianity was nothing more than one of many ancient mythological systems. In other words... He forsook a Christian worldview for an atheistic worldview. As a professor, he was actually involved in ongoing conversations with one of his close professor friends. One of his best friends was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was a Christian, and he and Lewis took long walks and discussed the possibility of the existence of God. Tolkien insisted that even though the Christian story was similar to ancient mythologies, it was the only story based on historical fact. In other words, it was true. He challenged Lewis to think about Christianity. As Lewis contemplated these long discussions, he began a journey back to God. You could say he began to surrender his thinking to God. He passed through several mental steps that ultimately led him to a belief in Jesus. First, he came to believe that there was an absolute 
which was spirit, not material, spirit, spiritual. Then he came to understand that that absolute spirit could rightfully be called God, the creator. You see, he, he begins to admit God knows better and he begins to fear God. For him, the next logical step was to understand that Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God. Lewis wrote, and here's his words, For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I find what appalled me, a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Of course, I could do nothing. I could not last but one hour without continual conscious recourse to what I called spirit. But the fine philosophical distinction between this and what ordinary people call praying to God breaks down as soon as you start doing it. So what did he pray? Here's what Lewis wrote happened when he began to pray to this God. I gave in. And I admitted that God was God and knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. In other words, he was reluctant. He wasn't sure. And yet he surrendered and God accepted his imperfect surrender and saved C.S. Lewis. The words compelled them to come in. Have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. Well, here's what he concluded. He concluded that if this is who God is, in light of who He is, God asks for nothing less than total surrender. And on that night, Lewis utterly surrendered his life, still struggling with a sin nature, still not perfect, but he surrendered it all. And he, and, and, and he had a now a biblical worldview. And he has written so many books, and he has influenced so many people to think about Christianity and to help people to become thinking Christians. So I just want to say to you, here's C.S. Lewis's worldview. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. It's his worldview and it can be yours. And we're not talking about just a worldview. We're talking about a God who created the world and he created you. And so let me ask you this morning. Are you willing to surrender your thinking to the one who surrendered everything for you through his son, Jesus Christ? Will you admit this morning that God knows better than you? Will you bow your head and your heart and begin to fear God more than anyone or anything? Will you commit and say, Lord, by your grace and with your help, 
by faith, I will capture every thought and bring it into obedience to Christ. In other words, I will begin to think about my thinking. And Lord, I, 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 I take your promise to heart. I will delight in the boundaries of a biblical worldview. In the comment section right there, there is a connection card. If you make that decision today, I would love to hear about it. Our church would love to help you take next steps. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I know this was deep and it was long, and and yet, Lord, it's so important. And maybe it may feel like it's over our heads, but we need to raise our heads up and begin to think about you and our relationship with you. If there's anyone here listening, struggling, searching, Lord, reveal yourself to them. Enable them to surrender their all and let them begin to follow these ABCs for surrendering their thinking. You can save those who come to you who by faith turn from evil and trust in you with all their heart, leaning not on their own understanding. And Lord, you can save them and make their path straight. I pray that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, hey, next week we won't be live streaming at 9.30, but we'll continue this series at 11 o'clock at the 9.30 and 11 o'clock in-person services. So hope to see you there and online at 11 instead of 9.30.